Okay, since I was able to get my hands on Olivo oil in 2021, I have been preaching the gospel. And if you don't know what Olivo oil is, it is an at-home infuser. It infuses everything. So whether you want to get a little bit more creative with your food or you like relaxing bombs that you can make, this machine is here to help you. They're always expanding and they're always growing. You can save 10% by using the code TUTIABRUJA. And if gummies are something you have a difficult time with, they have a little mixer that is perfect. So check them out today, levooil.com. Wow. Our entire society is built on our genitals. (laughs) Everything's about genitals. (laughs) Let's address the conditions that propagate violence. Hello, I'm Akshi. And I'm Shayna. And you're listening to Unpacking the Eerie. Over the course of our friendship, we quickly learned that we had very specific overlapping interests in true crime, the occult. And basically an intelligent ghost is one that can communicate with us and it seems like it's responding. A psychologist saying it's really rare that like serial killers engage in this like kind of myth mixed methods mm. killing. What the fuck? Mixed methods? Mixed is this methods. a is this a research, research paper? Project? Yeah. <laughs> Conspiracy theories and other unknowns. Titanic was cursed. But there's like so many people who report seeing the same very tall, slender, dark figure that appears to be a man just kind of looming over them and they can't move. There's these like random staircases that show up in the woods and people don't know what they are. Intergenerational and historical trauma. Social, racial, gender, and economic justice. Women who were being targeted by the Green River Killer knew he existed and didn't want to say anything because they thought they would be harmed by police. I just really wish that men would fucking call their friends out for saying and doing fucked up shit and not just staying silent. After many conversations, we thought the intersections of all of these things would be prime content for a podcast we've always wanted but have never found. This is that podcast. Laugh, cry, and be terrified with us as we explore the many layers that exist under the surface of these stories. Creep yourself out with Unpacking the Eerie, available anywhere you get your podcasts. listening to another episode of Tutia Bruja. I'm Bex Carlos. Today I am re-releasing another episode that really has meant a lot to me. It is hard to pick and choose which ones to re-release. A lot of them are like my babies. You know, it's like they were put into the world and maybe they just weren't ready and maybe I should have rethought it. This is not one that I feel that way about. This is one that when I released it back then, I felt so proud of it and I still feel proud of it. And that's why I need to bring it back into the world. Today's episode features Akshi and Shayna, who are the hosts of Unpacking the Eerie, which is a podcast about true crime, the paranormal 
things that sometimes are not looked at through a socioeconomic or social justice lens. And these two lovely humans unpack so much in each episode. You know, their episode on Richard Ramirez is one of the first in which it was mentioned that Richard was prone to causing violence to Asian Americans. And there's reason for that. His cousin showed him a lot of really fucked up imagery and Polaroids and told him stories about all the violence that he committed during Vietnam. And it's very much erased from the conversation when we talk about the different levels of violence that he committed. This is a very powerful episode about witch hunts. We like to pretend that witch hunts are of a different era, of a different time. But I think with what is happening in the world right now, and a lot of people speaking out about the violence in Palestine, we are seeing people being persecuted. And it feels very McCarthy era in a lot of ways, which was a type of witch hunt, if you would like to call it that. You know, there are still witch hunts that happen all over the world. In two of the accounts, Akshis and Shana's are more modern examples of witch hunts, whereas mine takes us back to the Mexican Inquisition. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to let us jump into the episode. Hey everyone, I'm Bex. And I'm Shana. And I'm Akshi. One of the things that's pretty rad, especially if you're someone who really feels like they live their life at the intersections of social justice and trying to understand why people are the way that they are, you know, sometimes true crime, spirituality, all these different things. It's nice to analyze things. Well, this happened because of X, Y, and Z, and it was a domino effect. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think we agreed that we like listening to a lot of true crime and like creepy stuff, but there was a lot of thoughts that we would have while listening to stories or finding out about stories that were just like not touched upon at all. Yeah, there's always a socio-political context that's completely left out of the conversation on violence and even more paranormal stuff like hauntings. Mm-hmm. Like the haunting stories usually have a tragic backstory that's right. rooted in some kind of injustice paranormal phenomenon is just so whitewashed so because of that i think that we all wanted to come together and talk about some stuff that we find interesting and there have been so many different things going off that are this is divine timing Mm -hmm. (laughs) for sure i am glad that we're doing this and i feel like i learned a lot of interesting things while doing research for this episode Don't get me wrong, I have some issues with Crime Junkie, but I really love the way that Ashley Flowers tells a story. I agree. But it sort of brought me to your podcast. And from the get-go, I was like hooked. I kind of listened to them out of order. So I I listened to the one about the Green River Killer. Uh Uh-huh. And just the commentary and all of the different things that y'all were doing. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm, I think it too. I feel it too. Yeah, I just, I really enjoyed the show. And I was like, maybe they'll want to work together. For all the listeners at home, I sent them an email just like, let's see what happens. And there were just all of these like divine timing things that kind of made us feel like this was something we were supposed to do. Yes. 
Well, we're so glad that you reached out. Me too. We got this email and we were like, what's this? Our first outreach for a collab. And I checked out your stuff and I was like, wow, you know, like this person is really like, well, first of all, I was like, of course, this witchy bitch found our stuff. And then second, I was like, wow, you know, like this person's covering like spirituality and witchcraft from a lens that's super similar to the approach that we do with Unpacking the Eerie. It's like a similar framework with different topics and it felt super complimentary and I love your guests. Yeah, thank you. I've tried to keep it very diverse because I feel like sometimes in various, you know, podcasts about occult, metaphysical, or just like witchcraft, it's always focused on people that just have these very large audiences. Mm. And I think that that's important. And I think that we should, you know, look to all different types of people, though, because it's like we're all magic and all of us carry all these traditions. And the fact that we're here and that so many of our ancestors have, you know, dealt with so much trauma and genocide and violence. And so many of us have the traditions that we're able to continue on. That's a blessing in itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, I think, powerful to help people connect with various things related to their traditions that are not focused on, I guess. And so, yeah, that's, that's the kind of work that I do. And so, yeah, I am that witchy bitch. (laughs) (laughs) We identify as such. (laughs) (laughs) oh and i want to bring up the fact because like i i mention this all the time on the show i'm from the st louis area and the area code here is 314 so i have been noticing since i was about 21 and i'm 27 now that every now and then i'll see the 314 number but it'll be like something that keeps showing up in terms of like it was someone i knew's apartment number when i was 21 and it was the code to get into their building so it was something that i saw very frequently because of that and then it was also shana's apartment number at one point of time and like i see it kind of out in the world too and one thing that made me be like oh we for sure have to like follow through on this person reaching out to us is because your area code is 314 and I saw it in the phone number in your signature. And I also at one point lived in an apartment that was 314, which was like on the street of where all this really creepy stuff in regards to events that inspired The Exorcist happened. Oh shit. Fuck? I'll have to send y'all the link to that specific episode. Oh, um fuck. but yeah, so I lived on that street, which was a very like strange time in my life. And that was a really creepy building. I feel like 314 is that number that's associated with a lot of collaborations and magic related things. So yeah. Ooh. Well, it's interesting that you say that about the exorcist because Shannon and I briefly talked about it last night because I watched The Exorcist when I was really young, probably like 10 or 11, and I couldn't get through the whole thing because it like freaked me out too much. And then I like had a fever from watching it. And then Shayna shared that. I used to watch it to go to sleep <laughs> as a kid. What? Comfort okay. movie. Yeah. You know, some people watch Disney animated movies, shows. Yeah. And I put on horror movies to go to Not sleep. even horror movies, but like The Exorcist. That's true. The Exorcist. It wasn't the only one. There was also the-, the Shining in rotation. But yeah, psychoanalyze that audience. <laughs> <laughs> That particular case is just something that's always been very terrifying to me. And the fact that like the events that inspired that happened in my hometown, uh, you know, there's just a lot of layers. Yeah, that's creepy. It's 
kind of similar to how my life is weirdly parallel with Ted Bundy's because I had my internship at the same place that he apparently had an internship. And then I lived like two blocks from where his girlfriend used to live in Seattle. And then there was like something else, but just like why? Why am I so tied to this man? This man. Also, not too far from there, the monkey pub used to be his watering hole. Oh, ew. Yeah, I think it's up Roosevelt. I'm not sure, but it's like in between where you and I were yeah, living. Yeah, yeah. If you walked, you would, we would walk right by Yeah, it. Yeah, in my old apartment, we lived right next to a super nice park. It's called Ravenna Park. It's in Northeast Seattle beautiful green okay, park creepy but i'm sure that he spent a lot of time in there because it's very creepy like at night and there's like no lights at all and it's covered with trees so i'm sure he used it i'm sure he used it yeah i don't know i never vibed with the park and then i learned that it like ted bundy probably <laughs> chilled there i was like oh i really don't like the park and the ox would be like you want to go on a walk to Ravenna park i'm like no bitch i don't <laughs> i would go there in the daytime yes because there's usually a lot of people that gives the same energy as like when you don't like somebody but you don't have a reason and then you find out that reason yes, always yes there's always a reason there's always a reason and now I just trust it because I have not trusted it a lot of times and regretted it. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like ever since I was a little kid, I was just always so interested in scary movies and serial killers. I think I, I blame Unsolved Mysteries for that one. And then just witchcraft, you know, mm. and I was always so scared of those things. They scared me. But I don't know. There's that whole thing where it's like the things that scare you sometimes are the ones that you like the most. And I definitely felt like that, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Salem was always one particularly that I had so much interest in. I went to Salem once. It's kind of a commodified place. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it felt very touristy. But, you know, all the old structures are there. And the places where a lot of bad shit happened, like the trials, and then like the people who were responsible for putting the trials on, like where they lived, have been turned into pubs and stuff, which is kind of creepy. But I didn't go on the real tour because it costs a lot of money. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to self-tour. It's fine. Self-tours are great us talking about Salem transitions. Oh, that's true. It does transition very well. Today, we're talking about witch hunts. And we wanted to give a broader context to what that looks like across the globe and over time. And really, the only witch hunt that gets talked about over and over are based in the West, specifically the Salem witch trials gets so much attention. And it really didn't last that long. And it really wasn't as many people as other places. Not that that minimizes what happened to them. It just says a lot about who we care about. Mm-hmm. For folks who don't know what the Salem witch trials are, or, or you know, I've heard of it and don't have like the information... The Salem Witch Trials began during the spring of 1692 after a group of young girls in Salem Village, Massachusetts claimed to be possessed by the devil and accused several local women of witchcraft. So like this big wave of hysteria spreads through colonial Massachusetts and a special court convened to address this in Salem to hear the cases. And this continued for about a year. So during this time, there was like a recent smallpox epidemic, and there were fears of attacks from neighboring indigenous tribes. And longstanding rivalry was forming between the more affluent community of Salem and the 
less affluent community. So there's this like class differential as well. So of course, it's like easy to scapegoat women, especially Mm -hmm. poor houseless or enslaved women. Those were all the women that were targeted for witchcraft. Most people know about Salem through Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. I also read it in school. Did you? Yeah, I did too. In Singapore? Yes. What the fuck? We did it in my drama class and then we like did role play stuff. So what they didn't tell me in school was that actually the Crucible is written as an allegory for like the anti-communist witch hunts that were perpetrated oh. by uh, Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s. It was a political commentary and it mm-hmm. was like not just a recounting of this story. Yeah. Fun fact, in an effort to like try to explain why the people who were vomiting and convulsing and had quote-unquote delusions there was a 1976 scientific investigation posted in science magazine and they cited fungus ergot which is found in rye wheat and other cereal which toxicologists say can cause those symptoms so wow that was explained long time after which also honestly speaks to how much we hold on to stories about people in the west 1976 someone really put the time in to investigate that shit so long after yeah i mean same with titanic same with titanic yeah yes they put a plaque at the bottom of the ocean you can still go spend thousands of dollars to dive down there what the actual hell there were fucking genocides that don't get that recognition (laughs) so true excuse me that's the salem witch trials in a very small container and on that note I was talking about how we want to shed light on more international stories. And also, we look at witch hunts as something that's very much time-capsuled in the past. But in reality, it's been happening continuously up until modern times, which is something that Akshi is going to cover. You know, just a content warning, like a lot of the stuff I'm going to be saying is super, super intense violence against women like graphic violence against women so just putting that out there i'm gonna start by quoting a survivor of witch hunts in india this is a story of chutney mahato or chutney Devi, and i want to quote her saying her story she says i was married into a joint family in jamesh the poor in 1978 I wanted the children in the family to study, which went against the elders' interests, and that was the beginning of my bad days. When one of my neighbor's daughters got sick, people started suspecting me of practicing witchcraft and called the panchayat, which is the village council, where I was suspected as a witch in September 1995. Some people from my in-law's side, along with villagers, barged into my house and tried to rape me. A panchayat was called again, but no action was taken. Following that, she was tortured for three days, and the panchayat also imposed a fine of 500 rupees on her for practicing witchcraft, and she was forced to pay, but it still didn't stop. One night, the villagers called an exorcist who wanted to force me to consume human feces and urine to get rid of my spell. They couldn't succeed. So she was publicly humiliated by her in-laws and branded a witch in her community. And after all of the stuff that I just described, including at one point she was tied down and beaten up, and she also was forced to walk through the streets of her village naked. 
After all of that happened, they then dragged her and her three children out of their house and ostracized her from the community. And so she became homeless. She said, no one came forward to help. I was forced to spend nights under a tree. I walked miles along with my children to reach my parents' place, who then took me to the Gamharia police station where the police refused to register my complaint. And this was in 1995. So pretty recently... In India, around 2,500 people have been accused of witchcraft and have been killed between 2000 and 2016, according to crime records. And these are just reported cases to the police. And a lot of cases go unreported. Partners for Law and Development state it is only the most gruesome cases that are reported. Most cases of witch hunting go unreported and unrecorded, which makes sense when the police oftentimes will not even take a report for it. Often how this tends to happen is that the perpetrators of the branding will consult with a witch doctor who are sometimes known as Konsas, Soka, Janguru, or Oha, the people in villages who use medicinal herbs and that people go to for consulting about a variety of things. Supposedly, this witch doctor, who's usually a male, will use incantations and then writes the name of all the suspected on a tree and the name that's on the branch that withers is condemned a witch. There's also other ways that this like supposed witch doctor does that, which is that he'll write the names of people on rice and put them in different bags in a nest of white ants and whichever bags that ants eat is the witch. Sometimes they also use potions. So in 2011, a shaman forced 30 women to drink a potion to prove they weren't witches and it had a poisonous herb in it and they all fell ill and the shaman was arrested. Oftentimes, these are not actually like real rituals. Shamans and witch doctors are paid money by the perpetrators in order to label specific women as witches. Once they've been identified, branded, publicly accused, women will experience a variety of atrocities, like content warning again, being forced to have their heads shaved, walking through their villages naked, sometimes while being chased by a mob, gang rape, having parts of their body cut off, especially sexual parts of their body cut off, having their teeth broken, being forced to consume urine and feces, eat human flesh, sometimes drink the blood of animals, sometimes pierced iron rods that mobs sometimes chase them with. They have been pierced through their body and oftentimes people bleed to death. Oh my God. And they have also experienced lynching and being burned alive. That's kind of the spectrum. At best, they're ostracized from their village and like at worst, they experience all of these other things. So the communities that this occurs in is typically in more rural areas of India. Women are the most vulnerable to experiencing this, but it's not just specifically women. It's poorer women of lower castes who are typically older women, widows, or single women. There's clearly a pattern there of women who aren't attached to a man Mm -hmm. at a point in their life. I actually found a really great quote by Pooja Singhal Purvar, who is a social welfare official in India. And she says that the superstition is a mask for true motives and that it's only an excuse. And they spread superstitions like in a way to 
control women and like use it as an excuse to commit atrocious acts of violence. Mm -hmm. Terrence McCoy from the Washington Post states, by punishing those who are seen as vile and wild, oppressors perhaps want to send not so subtle message to women, docility and domesticity get rewarded, anything else gets punished. So now I'm going to kind of go into the reasons why this specifically happens in India and why it happens to this very specific population as well. And you'll notice that all of the reasons actually intersect with each other very well to form a conclusion of this happens as a way to violently sustain caste or Brahmanical patriarchy in India, which is related to the caste system. So it's an intersection of both caste and gender. And because most of the victims of witch hunts in India today come from scheduled oppressed castes. Dalit activist P.G. Ambedkar in 2017 claimed that there isn't a single case of witch hunting against upper caste or Brahmin women that has been identified to this day. So it's like a very clear and obvious population that is being targeted with this like atrocious violence. So just a little bit about the caste system to give some people context who wouldn't know about it. It is a system that some people will say is a legacy to Indian society, but it definitely still exists today. And it was given by Brahminism. It's a socio-political ideology in which Brahmins occupy the highest place and they're like seen as the sole providers of wisdom and knowledge on practically like every issue of the world the ideology. It is considered to be the main factor, like Brahmanical patriarchy, behind witch hunting or branding of women as witches. Dalit activists claim that witch hunting is part of the many caste atrocities against Dalit women in a common way an excuse used to kill them, literally. Dalit women stand at a very marginalized intersectional identity they're part of the most vulnerable caste in India. So they face discrimination based on their caste, but they also face discrimination based on their class and gender, both from within their caste and from outside of it. So because of that, they face a lot of violence, including as this phenomenon of witch hunting. Tanvi Yadav, who was a research scholar in the Department of Public Policy, Law and Governance in Central University of Rajasthan, wrote a paper that's called Witch Hunting, a Form of Violence Against Dalit Women in India. And in that, she says, grabbing property, political jealousy, personal conflicts, getting sexual benefits, or settling old scores are found to be common reasons to declare a woman a witch. However, deep down, it is a conspiracy of Brahminical patriarchy to control resources and sustain caste hierarchy by hitting where it hurts the most, inflicting injuries on Dalit women. There was a story about how this Dalit woman was branded as a witch by upper caste people in her community that didn't approve of her mother-in-law being elected the head of the village committee and the development work that her mother-in-law wanted to do. This victim told reporters that they had victimized her solely because she belonged to the Dalit community and that the upper caste men in the community had made some unreasonable demands from her mother-in-law. And when she refused to fulfill those desires, they started torturing the victim, who's her daughter-in-law, 
after branding her a witch. And then the whole upper caste community like socially ostracized their whole family. So that's a story. And then another story is how one Dalit woman was blamed for a child's death in a landlord family and accused as a witch because this child died. Other women in her village stood in her support. And so the village authority dis- like disliked this and took this as an opportunity to kind of like teach these women a lesson. So all four women were branded as witches by the witch doctor who was paid money by the perpetrators to do this. And he then forced them to drink a potion and use that as an excuse to brand them as witches. Often what happens is that whoever is like named the witch is chosen by powerful groups and their followers, usually in an upper caste. And they usually identify these witches in communities that have a lot of Dalit women in them. Dunby also states that one of the most common explanations for witch hunting is gender-based violence in which vulnerable women are targeted by men in power. And witch hunting has resulted because of the successful enforcement of patriarchal order that forces women violently into a position below men and just like objectifies them so much to the point where, yeah, they have no autonomy, freedom of their life or body. Doing research on it, I was like, oh my God, what the fuck? And I started crying. I was mentioning this to Shayna the other day, like the way that men in India are just so violently oppressive towards women in such a like blatant way. Like I'm just thinking about a really famous case where in Delhi, this girl who was like in her 20s, like literally went out for a movie with her male friend and was going home around 8pm. And this group of men saw them together and was like, Oh, you shouldn't be out like of the house with a man who isn't your father, brother, or husband. And they killed her friend and then gang raped her. And it was a really famous case. And it was pretty much they were just policing her for being outside of the house after a certain point of time without like a male escort. Shit like this happens in India all of the time. It's like a spectrum of violence. And it's just something that women honestly are taught to expect in their lives. That's really terrifying to me to just think about people's capacity for violence, especially male violence. It is literally so terrifying. Mm -hmm. And to feel no more remorse after and instead, I don't know. Feel like justified. Yeah. Or like pride. Yes. Yeah. As if it's tied to like your worth as a man. Yeah. Clearly, it's like really obvious that this phenomenon, I guess, is the right word for it is like very much about policing women and enforcing gender norms because most survivors are able to draw a very clear connection between their experience and, you know, it being based in gender-based violence. A lot of women recall that they were branded as witches not because they caused any harm to anyone else, but because they broke gender norms by either refusing a sexual advance from a man or by inheriting land. So that's really interesting. This land possession reason is also a very common reason why this witch hunting happens. And basically, like fields, homes, lands, livestock are all resources that can be stolen through witch hunting. 
because many victims are childless widows who have property rights. When they die, their property is passed on to the nearest male relative in their family. And these male relatives, by accusing them of witchcraft, are able to get the land. Literally, in some areas, women are targeted and victimized through witch hunting by land mafias in the the dominant caste in order to steal their land and settle their interest in this land behind this mask of superstition. Because they're able to declare them a witch, force them out of their home, get them ostracized from their village, and then it's super easy to get their property. And in some areas, there's like a rule that a widow's right to property is denied if other members of her family can prove that she's a witch, which how do you prove someone's a witch? You ask the witch doctor who you paid money? Great. Makes me so mad. Three Gujarati women were accused of eating the souls of their male relatives, were then beaten nearly to death and forced to give up their land and made to live with their abusers. I really hate it here. And I hope their souls get eaten. Currently, there's no um, national law in India or even state laws that address this issue or like ban witch hunting. However, there is some local legislation in areas where it's prevalent. Some states have tried to outlaw witch hunts, but it hasn't really helped either because dozens of murders related to witch hunting happen every year in a lot of areas in India. That's all I have. It truly is a way of putting women in their place because in Salem, that was one of the biggest reasons was a property grab, which I feel like is not discussed enough. It's just so interesting because like this is happening in like rural India where they have most likely never heard of Salem witch trials. So like that's not where they're like getting this idea from. And it's just happening in two completely different places in the world, but for exactly the same reason. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is a half-baked thought, but I'm just thinking about how like more native spiritual practices that have existed in all of those places, you know, forever. I think over time, post-colonialism, because it had been weaponized before, they understand that it can be weaponized to like enforce their own supremacy, you know, like target groups, Mm. in this case, women, Mm -hmm. but in other cases, like dictated by race, class. I mean, here also... Cast class. That's true. That's Cast true. class and gender. That's true. I feel like everything stems from capitalism and colonialism. It's easier to accuse someone of something terrible and potentially profit or benefit from that in some sort of way than it is to figure out the ways or methods to find or get something yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which sort of, I guess, brings me to my topic because it definitely ties in with witchcraft in the sense that I think that there's the understanding that witchcraft is always connected with like the devil. A while back on my show, we recorded an episode of the history of tequila the spirit in regards to there being folklore of one of the most prominent families to be in tequila had sold their soul to the devil to achieve the success that they did. And so that kind of got me into a place thinking about like magic, thinking about the devil, thinking about colonization, just all these various things, right? Because in that episode, we had talked about how, and I'm going to link the episode in the show notes so you can listen, but we had talked about how their grandfather built a house that my grandmother lived in for a while. So I spent time in this house and it was definitely haunted. And recently I was talking to my mom about it. I had mentioned to her that they had had someone in their inner circle die in the house. 
to which I said, oh, that's probably why it's haunted. And my mom said to me, well, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that when the Spanish were colonizing that region, they would dump bodies there. And so I started to dig a little bit more into just the history of colonization in Mexico specifically. So let me set the stage for you because I did not know this. And uh, to be quite honest, the monarch in Spain is a little confusing to me. So I'm going to kind of break it down and get it up to the point of witch hunts. So Isabella and Ferdinand married in 1469, which respectively unified their kingdoms. They were known as the Catholic monarchs. And in 1478, the Spanish Inquisition began as a dual effort to stomp out any faith that was not Catholicism, primarily eliminating any Jewish or Muslim people in any of the land that was Spain or their territories and or any other kingdoms that they ruled, which they did have a lot of Europe at the time. And that later changes to expand onto more. So it was a dual effort on their parts. And in 1492, Columbus is sent to the finger quote new world. In 1504, Isabella dies, leaving Joanne, her daughter, to take her place as queen. So soon after that, they start to see an influx of silver from the New World. So it sort of starts to make them feel like they made the right decision going there. So Philip was Joanne's husband, who was supposed to take the throne. At that point, Isabella had died, so it would be him and Joanne. However, Ferdinand just really enjoyed being king. So he had signed all this legislation and then essentially tried to figure out a way to get out of it. Well, he is lucky, I guess, is a way of putting it, because in 1406, Philip actually dies. So Ferdinand is allowed to continue his reign. And Ferdinand dies in 1516. So Charles' son who was raised in Belgium, comes to Spain and being hungry for the throne, locks up his mother in a convent for being mentally ill. So thus becomes his reign in Spain. So his official rule starts in 1519. King Charles I, he bribes some prominent German officials to be given the title of the Holy Roman Emperor. And at this point, he has vast power over Europe. The empire has extended to other places besides just Spain. But overall, his rule is deemed as a failure. Um, There were a lot of things going on. You had Martin Luther begin the Protestant Reformation. So that's something that he's dealing with as they've acquired Germany. That is not good vibes. At this time, also, Hernan Cortes has made his arrival in the area that is now Mexico City. And what was really interesting to me is that I had never expanded upon the areas of New Spain and how they were specifically chosen. So a big reason, amongst all the other things that they were finding, is they were trying to essentially find a replacement for brandy because the supplies to make brandy had been running out. And so they needed something else that could potentially fill that place to be able to get drunk. And when they encountered the Aztecs, they used agave nectar and different parts of the agave. Like, for example, one thing that I remember reading was a cure in Aztec culture for like an injury was if you mixed egg whites and agave nectar and put it over something, it would help disinfect it and remove any bacteria. That led for them to find 
more agave, a place where they could find a lot of agave. In order to make tequila, you can only get it from a few specific states and regions in Mexico. The state of Jalisco being one of them, which is where my family is from. So tequila and the general area that is Guadalajara was the second city in Mexico to be part of what is finger quote, New Spain. So this is still under the rule of Charles in 1529. Nuno Beltran de Guzman arrives in the area of Jalisco. This area was primarily made up of the Huichol, Cora, Coca. It wasn't necessarily located in the area in which tequila is now, which makes me kind of circling back to the fact that my mom's statement in regards to where bodies were dumped. At first, there wasn't a whole lot of resistance to the Spanish. I think that this was primarily due to the fact that Guzman had come to the area with 300 Spaniards and 6,000 indigenous warriors. And so there wasn't a whole lot of resistance. And so the village of Santiago Tequila was found. Under this rule as well, in 1541, various indigenous groups rebelled against the Spanish, including, and I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing these, the Texconines, the Caxocanes, from the neighboring towns of Tatlanago, Xochipitila, Nochetetlan, and Teoclatec rebelled first, with those in tequila joining later. This was called the Mixton Rebellion. And this continued on. In early 1542, the stronghold of the Mixton fell to the Spaniards and the rebellion was over. The aftermath of the natives' defeat was that thousands were dragged off in chains to mines, and many of the survivors, mostly women and children, were transported from their homes to work on Spanish farms and haciendas. Guadalajara was soon after founded in its current state. But I just find that really fascinating that Guadalajara was founded second to Tequila. Again, that had to do with the fact that they were searching for something to help get people drunk. And you might be asking yourself, well, why is this all relevant? So this is relevant because when I started doing research for my witch hunt, picking the the Mexican Inquisition, which again is an extension of the Spanish Inquisition, I was just very confused because, you know, obviously there were all these factors and all these indigenous people that were killed, but that isn't included in the statistics of the Mexican Inquisition. Not terribly long after Guadalajara is founded in its current spot, Charles starts to realize that he doesn't have much time left and passes power to his brother Philip II in 1556. So this was about 15 years before the official start of the Mexican Inquisition. So at this point, there was the forcing of indigenous groups to convert to Catholicism. Philip has gained power, and he is kind of busy, right? Because at this point, they've acquired a lot more different countries. You have all the effects of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. So he decides to allow for bishops to decide what is, finger quote, blasphemous. This is sort of where brujeria was created, because if the bishops didn't find it to be blasphemous people could carry on with their traditions. And it's interesting because Mexico is a Catholic country, but Catholicism in Mexico is a little bit of a mockery because there are so many different layers and it's about being able to practice in plain sight. So you have the fusion of African culture, indigenous culture, Jewish culture, 
all these various aspects, you know, parts of Spanish culture all fused into one in a way to be able to use magic and prosper within colonialism. So it's interesting because it's like a form of resistance and what people needed to survive within this oppressive regime. What's the most upsetting for me is realizing that the land that was colonized and taken from my ancestors was just so that they could drink and be able to find like the sources that they needed to be able to drink. The specific numbers associated with the Mexican Inquisition say that only 50 out of the 324 people that were prosecuted were murdered and completely excludes all of the indigenous people that were killed. And those 50 that were killed were specifically killed for being Jewish. Yeah. Or even if there were documents of it, just like getting rid of them because it's not worth saving. I think that this topic and, you know, we have one more story to share, but the fact that it just keeps reminding us that that is the underlying why these mm-hmm. happen is just like, oh, the devil is also colonialism and arguably capitalism in my bit as well. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so we talked about the Salem witch trials and people know about that shit, but. I would guess that very few people know that there are very similar occurrences happening in Okinawa very close to the same time and beyond that time. Not dissimilar from other places that we have talked about. And the shamans or the witches that we're going to focus on that are native to Okinawa are called Yuta, which we'll get to in a second. I also wanted to talk about how before 1879, Okinawa was a separate country from Japan. There's a lot of discourse around like Okinawans having their own culture. It is their own space. And they're just like colonized land by Japan. And there are still people fighting for that to this day. Mm. I just really want to honor that. But before this, they were called the Ryukyu Kingdom. In the early 15th century, which is the earliest I'll go back to in this history, the Sho kings ruled the Ryukyu Kingdom. This area is kind of situated between Taiwan and Kyushu, which is an area in the southern part of Japan. And this happened from the early 15th century all the way through 1879, which is when it was like annexed by Japan. And what set them apart from the surrounding spaces was that they actually didn't have an army and their survival was based on trade and diplomacy. That was their livelihood. And it worked well for them for a long time. They're just chilling. The Ryukyuan ships were often provided by China and it helped them trade at ports in Vietnam, Korea, Japan, Java, Malacca, Patani, Palembang, Siam, Sumatra, China, and others. They traded materials that were from Japan, such as silver, swords, fans, lacquerware, and folding screens, materials from China that included medicinal herbs, minted coins, glazed ceramics, and textiles, materials from Southeast Asia that included rhino horn, tin, sugar, iron, and sappanwood. They also helped trade Indian ivory and Arabian frankincense, so worldly-ass bitches. And... While other nations were, you know, organizing how they're going to invade other countries, the Ryukyu kingdom was especially known for being honest brokers because they were just wanted to do their trade and like live their lives. They were actually known to China as the country of courtesy and the Ryukyu kingdom was like pretty peaceful and they had like a lively local culture. And 
They also managed to avoid a lot of invasions for a long time, thanks to their role in international trade. Uh, Places really depended on them to be kind of a conduit to that. And they also received a lot of support from Chinese emperors. And so that kind of put them in a subordinate position in that China had more resources, more power, army strength, and then also they provided their ships. But really, it was their own kingdom. China, they didn't try to take Mm. over, you know? And then around 1590... Toyotomi Hideyoshi asked the Ryukyu kingdom to help him conquer Korea. And they were like, if you can do this, then we're going to take on China and we can like reap the rewards together. And the Ryukyu kingdom was like, no, because we're a tributary state of the Chinese Ming dynasty and we're not going to fuck with them. That's not how we roll anyway. Not our thing. Not our thing. We just want to trade and we want to chill was the vibe that I got. Yeah. Sounds chill. It sounds chill. I'm. We I'm really could have been chilling. Yeah. And we really we could to be, be chilling right now. We could. Too. We could just all be enjoying fruit, being in the sun. Well, a lot of us, you know. But now we have to yeah. pay taxes and do a lot of this bullshit. Yeah. Yes, and our lives are defined by our credit scores. Yes. And so Japan offers this opportunity to be imperial fuckers with them and they're like no and so they're pissed japan's like we don't get what we want i'm mad so yeah in 1608 the feudal lord of satsuma invaded the ryukyu islands and put an end to the kingdom and their prosperity the king was kidnapped the ryukyu kingdom was forced to swear allegiance to shimazu or the shimazu clan of satsuma and they didn't abolish the ryukyuan monarchy and absorb the island's in their entirety, they decided to quote unquote allow the kingdom to continue while keeping the invasion a secret from the Chinese. Wow. Uh, yes. Yeah. Because they needed trade from mm. China too. So they couldn't be outwardly like, mm. you know, we're fucking with your yeah. trade routes. Yeah. yeah. And so they were able to expand though their trade to China by doing this. It put the Ryukyu Islands in like a really shitty position like yeah. like a really shitty wedge in between ruling class that was holding them hostage from japan mm-hmm. but also like under the i guess financial power of china mm-hmm. who were providing the boats for them to mm-hmm. conduct trade yeah. and then in 18, uh, 1879 japan officially annexed okinawa well annexed the ryukyu kingdom and named it okinawa mm-hmm. and then dissolved the kingdom so that's mm-hmm. the backdrop of what i'm about to share the witch hunts that were happening during this time and beyond. So to go back to traditional beliefs, the Ryukyuan had their own distinct set of religious beliefs. Buddhism was present, but it wasn't as influential. Like it wasn't a prominent thing. It was way more prominent in Japan and China. And also Confucianism was introduced from China. And as the influence increased in the 17th century, it became a driving force behind the persecution of the Utah. And I think it's important to note that the Utah really were symbols of traditional Ryukyuan values and beliefs and their societal structure. And so like their existence is a threat to like this ruling class that's trying mm. to come in and dominate this land and its trade routes and its people. Mm-hmm. They actually, so the Ryukyuan people subscribe to a belief system called Onarigami, which is the ancient belief that spiritual power is in the domain of women. And so because of this, historians actually suggest that the Ryukyuan kingdom was a matriarchal society, which Mm. would make sense. 
we're chilling. We're chilling. We're taking care of each other. We're, mm-hmm. we're you know, mm-hmm. exchanging. Mm-hmm. And the roles of women in Okinawan society and ritual traditions were based around these religious beliefs. And there were women who had exceptionally high spiritual power. They were called kaminchu. And they had specific jobs based on those roles. So there's two categories of shamans that emerged during this time. There's the Yuta, the originals, mm-hmm. and the Noro, which I'll get into. So at the most basic level, Noro were priestesses, while the Yuta were spiritual mediums. They were both women, mm. and they were both involved in rites, rituals, and spiritual work, but the positions were very different. The positions of Noro were generally inherited matrilineally and were part of a system, while the Yuta, they were said to be chosen from a higher power. So it's said that the Yuta were able to see, hear, and be possessed by kami or spirits. And because of this, they were called upon when like mysterious or unfortunate events arose, and they were asked to provide some insight on why those events are happening and how they can be stopped. They were thought of as being the embodiment of particular kami as they could like see or communicate with them. And they also engaged in like mediumship, curing, exorcism, retrocognition. What the fuck's retrocognition? To perceive past events. Oh, Oh, I see. Opposite to precognition. Mm, Yes. Okay. Utah are said to be chosen by kami and... They typically don't go into it having like any knowledge of it. Historically, it's not something that they chose. It's something they were chosen for. And they said that they received messages from other realms that told them that they were meant to be this. And this was their calling. Utahs to this day actually are holders of a lot of knowledge. People describe them as like a human library. They were also holders of ghost stories. They held oral history, as we were talking about Mm. before. They Mm. held genealogies and they held ritual. Mm. So they really were like the backbone of a lot of the ways Mm. that it sounds like they were functioning. As I mentioned before, they were symbolic of tradition. So it was a threat to colonial forces. Yeah, yeah. There were also community shamans who were called Noro, as mentioned before. They were the official priestesses of Ryukyu. And while the king and his ministers formed the hierarchy of government, the head priestesses and the other Noro formed the religious hierarchy. So we're starting to see organizations of power form. Mm, mm -hmm. And the head priestess or the head Noro was usually the king's sister or another relative. So here we're seeing like parallels too of like, oh, our positional authority is based on something that was like, God given to us mm. by our royal blood sure. is like what it's reminding yeah, me of. Yeah. And it was like they performed similar duties. They tend to their community as well as the spiritual being of the people. They were also thought to be embodiments of particular kami. So people thought of them as divine. They are government officials. And so they also could help in tax collection in some localities and were in charge of officiating all ceremonial affairs in the community. They mm. might have also been in charge of officiating ceremonial affairs in their neighboring villages. So I'm going to call Noro witchy bureaucrats. because This was really hard to find. I imagine that the archival information is in Japanese, mm. which I don't read. And mm. no one's ever translated it. And been not been translated. So mm. I found very few... There's just like not a lot of information about this in English. And if they are, this has been covered predominantly by white people, either like from the anthropological gaze of white intellectuals or like literally 
just white people who are like, I think Japan is very cool. If I see another Timothy Smith (laughs) talking about their expertise in East Asian culture with a fucking PhD and all of these publications under his name, what is that for? Timothy, you could literally study anything. You could study your own ancestry. You could. And how fucked up they were. You could do that. Yeah, you could do that. (laughs) You probably have a lot more documents to look at. Yeah. You know, we actually go on a tangent about this in Certified Freak seven days a week. Yes. Yes, at the beginning about appropriating culture. Yes. And I think I share a stupid story about a stupid French dude that I met in India in that one. So you could go check that out. We'll attach the link to that in the show notes. Yes. Oh, delightful. So there's more. These witchy bureaucrats, they were saved from the persecution. Okay, we were talking about limited archival records, at least Mm -hmm. from my perspective, because it's what I can access. Mm -hmm. But they analyzed stuff from like the late 17th and early 18th centuries. And Utah were like, routinely accused of summoning spirits to murder sometimes on behalf of a client or sometimes like based on their own personal vendettas and so like then they were targeted and then most quote-unquote murder cases the royal government received notification of the incident and then they conduct an investigation based on i don't know what and then the accused woman generally had to be paraded around the village not dissimilar from your stories akshi and then they all decided if she was going to be beheaded or once in a while exiled. So that was typically shit. Yes. Yeah. It's always at best exiled, socially ostracized, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but usually that's not the only thing that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also I was reading that many of the Utah during this time and beyond were coupled in with sex workers And I read in another space that, like, Noral were typically assumed to be celibate. I don't think it's, like, a hard guideline. They just assume them to be celibate. So I'm seeing this duality of, like, Noral representing some type of an ideal kind of woman that benefits the hierarchy and benefits, like, the colonial powers in that space. And I'm seeing, like, Utah as, like, the direct opposite of that. You know, we're just going to lump you in with, like, evil magic and also... Mm -hmm. Sex, sex work an abomination no, they didn't say that <laughs> that's the vibe. That's the vibe. Yeah. and i mean the fact that they were so hunted says a lot about how threatened the powers if they weren't powerful members of society they wouldn't be targeted in this way and then sometimes they were incarcerated and then japan like i said annexed okinawa in 1879 dissolved the kingdom in the 1930s and 1940s more witch hunts occurred this time conducted by the japanese special higher police in okinawa the most southern and remote part of the prefecture and then there was the battle of okinawa which is going to be depressing and i'm sorry okay where do i start well even after the persecution of them they still were put on rituals to help put the spirits of the victims of the battle of okinawa to rest The Battle of Okinawa happened in 1945. It was led by the US and Japan with support from the UK, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia. Oh, I didn't know that. mm -hmm. And it was really fucked up. A lot of people, a lot of like innocent people died as with all Mm -hmm. imperial war war like scenarios. Yeah. 
the official U.S. 10th Army count for this 82-day campaign was a total of 142,058 bodies, including civilians who were forced into service by the Imperial Japanese Army. There was about 42,000 of those who were non-uniformed civilians who had been killed in crossfire. The Okinawa prefecture's estimate is over 100,000 losses. So like the U.S. was like 42,000, but in Okinawa, they're like, no, over 100,000 of our civilians died. There was a lot of rape and torture by American soldiers. I think we've mentioned this multiple times in yes. different episodes. Yes, we mention it in the Richard Energy mm-hmm, episode, that's right. which is about the unsolved family murder. And I think we also maybe mention it in the beginning of Certified Freaks. Also, more recently, the Japanese Ministry's Textbook Authorization Council allowed publishers to reinstate the reference that civilians were, quote-unquote, forced into mass suicides by the Japanese military. There's a lot going on there. Not only was there just, like, rampant violence through battles on that land, there was just, like, regular terror on the Mm. civilians who lived there on land that had been fucking terrorized for so long Mm -hmm. and more than 90 percent of okinawans were homeless near the end of the war in 1945 including the show family who were rulers the shuri castle was ruined it's since been restored but it was ruined and okinawa at this point is now under control of the United States and remained that way for 27 years until it was finally returned to Japan in 1972. Yeah, you know, what the fuck? They're just playing catch with this island. But the Utah actually helped lay spirits of the victims of the Battle of Okinawa to rest, as mentioned earlier, despite all of these conditions around mm. like their persecution, but also the persecution of Okinawans in general. Mm. Because after this, obviously, there was like a lack of mortuary rituals. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. people were not being buried with dignity. There are death rituals that are relevant in all cultures, and it's part of the grieving process. It's important to have them yeah. for closure and for for healing Mm -hmm. and for community connection that was stolen from them too and so people were experiencing mass grief mass trauma and spiritual dislocation and the utahs were trying to band together and help restore that Mm -hmm. for their community and then in 1980 there was more legislation targeting utah and the japanese claimed it was unscientific and un-japanese therefore you're not allowed to exist you don't exist. You don't exist because you're un-Japanese and you're unscientific. Goodbye. But in 1988, <laughs> they were talking about studies that showed two out of every three Okinawans consulted a Utah and that most patients at mental institutions seek therapy through both modern medicine and shamanism. There's a history that I'm not going to get into because it's like too much content, but there is a tie between modern psychiatry and the spiritual practices that Utah provide. And clearly there is something missing there in the psychiatric institutions that were very much influenced by the West coming in there and bringing it in as like some catch-all way to help people with mental, like things that were going on mentally for them and the peace they were getting from the spiritual practices that Utah provide Mm -hmm. that were rooted in community-based tradition and, you know, culture that's existed for thousands of years. There's that. Um, Something I really wanted to touch base on that 
that you had mentioned just now is the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't allowed to have their traditions and or be buried in a way that was honorable to their culture. That sort of connects back to when the Spaniards first started colonizing the area of Tequila. The indigenous people that were of there were of what's considered a shaft tomb culture, which is typically like there's a lot of figurines, burial goods, and things that were attributed like when you would bury your dead. It's really interesting to me that like at the time, it was almost like a justification of, oh, well, these people, they have these beliefs that are strange and whatnot. And just the ability to pick and choose like the things that people do, right? Because now Mexicans in particularly have such a connection to death. Like we have Dia de los Muertos. People pick and choose the things that are attached to a culture or a country or traditions or whatever based on the appeal of the larger group. A long time, Dia de los Muertos was such a taboo. And now it's just, oh, well, this is part of the culture. Mm. But whose culture, you know? Yeah. What you were saying earlier, Shayna, about the connection between spiritual leaders and healers and modern psychiatry, I was like literally just talking to my supervisor about how sometimes you can feel stuck with certain people. And when I was working in India, we used to go to temples and religious places with like clients all the time. And like my supervisor told me of stories where she like accompanied people who were like experiencing really bad psychosis to like mm-hmm. get like exercise, but not like in a, I don't know. Colonial sense. Colonial violent way. And that some of them really just like got completely better afterwards. Here, because there's such a lack of connection to that in like a way where you're like community will support you when you're experiencing that. There's a lot of roots of healing that are missing when you're like doing one-on-one therapy with people mm-hmm. in a society that's super like isolating and where it's not just like the norm for people in the community to be like, oh yeah, I'm down to help. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah therapy can't provide community and that's like no. something that people really need to heal. Yeah. Bringing it back. So modern day... Utah still exist. They're part of the order of traditional Okinawan life and people seem to keep it alive. It sounds like they're reclaiming power on personal and community levels and they center the psychological and spiritual health of their communities. They provide long-term community-based care where medical systems can't or won't. And like, you know, people are discharged. Mm. There was a lot of talk about specifically like psychiatric situations Mm. where people would be released Mm. from institutions for one reason or another and that long-term care usually falls on the utah and the community yeah and the practices have evolved over time actually so for example use telephones as props and ritual when they're communicating with ancestors oh that's cool you know like an offering on like an altar Yeah, yeah yeah so that's kind of cool Sorry to interrupt, but this also connects to, I was just listening to a podcast the other day and they were speaking to Ed Calderon and he is a leading expert on various occult practices in Mexico. And he was discussing that honestly, when you really break it down, magic is just spicy psychology because you're essentially trying to attract things to you and use your energy and your mental capacity to make that happen, which I would argue a lot of magic is just putting effort and intention to make it happen. So fascinating that it's coming up again. Totally. I mean, brains are magical. 
And the way nature operates and the way science works is magical. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much magic in mm -hmm. everything that we do all the time. Yeah, especially like just at the most basic level of it. If you just like look at the universe, there's so many repeating patterns of things that... Yes, like, fractals. Way, fractals, yes. Fractals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Like the way... The way that when you zoom out and look at galaxies, mm -hmm. it's the same as they look like neurons, yeah, neural networks, yeah, and veins, and, and veins, and roots, yes, and roots. That's what I was thinking about. That's true. Thanks for yeah. sharing. Uh, I'm just going to end with a quote from Toshihiro Takaishi, a native of northern Japan who heads a rural mental hospital on Okinawa's peninsula. And they say, every culture has its own kind of stress and the cure has to come out of that cultural context. Shamanism goes back to the base of the culture, which, you know, not sure if it's a direct translation, but it's a translation that I was offered. My part ended on a bleak note, but I'm going to bring it back to the first story that I shared, which also connects to what we were just talking about. Chitney Mahato or Chitney Davy, who I mentioned right in the beginning of the episode, is now 63 years old. It took her about five years to recover from her physical injuries. And like I said before, she was ostracized and then moved back to her father's house with her three children. The police didn't help her when she tried to make a report against her in-laws. So she formed a group of 70 women and started a campaign against witch hunting. And since then, she has saved a lot of people from getting treated in the way that she was and probably saved a lot of lives as well. Today, she's in charge of a rehab center in Birbans Panchayat. And she has a team of 90 women from various villages in Charkand, which is the state that she's from, who like just watch out for abuse and harassment in their communities. In the past 25 years, she's rescued more than 125 survivors of witch hunting wow. and believes that it can be a practice that's abolished if more awareness is brought to the subject. So actually just this past year, so in 2021, she was awarded the Padma Shri, which is the fourth highest civilian award in India. And it's a recognition of like contribution in various spheres, but it was for her fight against witch hunting. She's like so famous that women from neighboring states will now approach her seeking assistance in cases. So some women recently came to her from Orissa seeking help against witch hunting. And they stated to her that they're followers of Guru Matha. So their way of worship is different from the people who are persecuting them. And that because of that, they've been torturing them for the past three years and not allowing them to plow their paddy fields. And they stayed with Chutney for three days and returned to their village after she told them she would definitely visit and help them find a solution. This is kind of sad. She still puts vermilion on her forehead, which is like a symbol of like reverence and only married women wear it. It's a symbol of marriage. And she says, thinking one day her husband will be proud of her and accept her back. Oh my God, what the heck? Yeah. But she also says her mission against fighting witch hunting will continue till her last breath. I'm going to quote one thing that she said, which is, I always cry when I remember the things that happened to me in the past, but I overcame everything. And since 2000, I'm fighting for the others, which is just lovely. And it isn't actually just her. She has done a lot of amazing stuff, but there's also this nonprofit that's based in a different state, Gujarat. It's called Anandi. And it's a nonprofit 
nonprofit that supports vulnerable communities in general, but it says on their website that it's their vision to bring rural women's concerns to the center of all development processes so that all can live in a just, equitable, peaceful society. They work on the values of justice, freedom, and promoting women and young leaders to work towards social justice, sustainable development, and accountable governance. And they build and strengthen rural women-led community-based organizations for sustainable livelihoods, rights, and entitlements in a violence-free society for women, youth, and children from tribal, Dalit, denotified tribes, and other marginalized communities. And they've been working since 1995. So So one of the groups that they work with are survivors of witch hunting. And between 2011 and 2013, they identified 500 witch branding cases in three districts across Gujarat. They provide support, care, community, and legal assistance to women experiencing being branded as a witch. So after this woman and her sisters-in-law were branded as witches, they came to Anandi and discovered that they were not the only women in their area who had experienced this. And so in their office in the Dahod district of Gujarat, survivors meet regularly, sitting in circles, sharing samosas and singing songs about the violence they suffer from men. Says one woman saying, who can I tell about my pain? Those in circle responded, singing that they would listen and help. The same group of women acts as on-call responders to gender violence. So on a visit to a nearby village, they met a recently widowed woman who had been accused of being Dakan, which is a witch. And one of the group members told her, remember our number, teach the number to your children. If anyone hurts you, call us, we will come and we'll bring the police. They travel from village to village using songs and plays to get the attention of locals, while at the same time warning women about the early symptoms of malaria, cholera, teaching them which foods to feed a weaning child, and also reminding them that accusations of witchcraft should be reported to the police. The police don't write down in the report, but we go to the police station and we tell them, this woman was beaten in a witch hunt, write Dakan in your report. Yeah, this person says like accurate reporting will also help with shedding more light on the extent to the problem. And they are working to push the state to have more like legal policies and laws that punish men for this practice. One of the women said, we protect each other. It's how we find strength. And some of them are even learning the law and have asked for a desk in the local police station so that they can advocate for women who walk in to report violence. Which is just like amazing and reminds me so much of just like transformative justice practices here where like stuff like that exists everywhere. It's just community response. If for people who don't know, transformative justice is a political framework and approach to responding to violence, harm and abuse without creating more violence and or also using harm reduction to lessen the violence. And it was created from indigenous communities, black communities, immigrant communities, poor and low income communities, just marginalized communities generally, sex workers, people with disabilities, queer and trans communities. It's really cool to see a parallel exist when it just kind of comes from community care. You know, this is the positive note that I'll end on. And apparently one of the women in the circle asked, does this kind of thing happen to women elsewhere? And someone in the circle mentioned the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1600s, as well as continued domestic violence across the world. So 
I think we all had kind of downer topics. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Super downer topics. Moral of the story, it all comes back to capitalism and colonialism and community-based care is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And educating yourself. Yeah. True. A lot of individuals used weaponized ignorance. It reminds me a lot. I don't know if either of you watched King of the Hill, but there's a whole part where Bobby is talking to John Redcorn and they have a conversation. It's something to the effect of, are you sure that white people did this? Because I come from white people and this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Oh, I do remember <laughs> that for some reason. <sighs> I think it's been made into a meme now. It's really frustrating when it's you are of a group that's seen like some type of colonial violence and it's like to this day right we're trying to explain that this is a real thing or like that the obvious Mm -hmm. signs are right there and it's like so Mm -hmm. much gaslighting yeah 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 Yeah, so talk to your friends about witch hunting Mm -hmm. spread the word that shit that bobby said white proverb (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh this was honestly a blast thank you so much for yeah so much fun Yeah. yeah thank you Thank you again for listening. Please, please, please go check out their podcast, Unpacking the Eerie. It's really good. There's tons of amazing episodes. And they always joke because they always end up having an episode. And less than like a few weeks later, Netflix releases something that they just talked about. The bitches are ahead of the curve. What can I say? But they are amazing. They're lovely humans. Keep up with them. The ways in which to do that are in the show notes. I'm so grateful that this podcast has connected me to like-minded individuals all over the country, all over the world. And I am so excited to continue to do that in the future. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for sharing space with me. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Have a good one. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.